Hello everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the Legal Leverage Podcast. Today I'm sharing a recent interview I did with Ed Goodman, the founder of the Freelance Heroes Facebook group and podcast. On this podcast, I talk about the key legal requirements faced by small business owners, particularly consultants, contractors and freelancers. This includes contracts, dealing with clients who don't pay and the biggie in this sector, IR35. I also answer some really important questions from Ed's audience. I hope you all really enjoy this episode and see you next week for another brand new episode from us. Enjoy! Hello, Babs Jameson. How are you doing? I always know uh, you call yourself Babs a lot. I never know where to go for the Babs or Barbara. What would you prefer? No one knows. No one knows what to go for. I think I confuse people, which is part of the entertainment. Um, Go for Babs. Go for Babs. It's much less formal. Just to add to it, when you sent me your um, you sent me your your bio for the show notes, you put about Barbara Jameson, but then describe yourself as Babs, and I'm thinking, well, you're just adding to the confusion. (laughs) But that's fine. I like it. Keeps us on our toes. Um, so thank you for this I've been wanting to do a legal episode of this for for some time and um, we've got some really interesting questions and these are really fascinating times as well Um, not just for our own individual freelance work and the the usual legalities around it but with IR35 around the corner with Brexit and the relatable issues there it's I mean it must be fascinating what's the kind of work you're getting most inquiries about at the moment yeah, I would say it's a it's a super interesting time, um, especially for you know contractors, freelancers, small businesses in the UK. Um, it's it's varied. We've had we've had real kind of peaks and troughs in terms of subject matter for the last year. So I would say this time last year it was the big run up to IR thirty five or so. We thought loads of loads of questions about contract reviews etc. There, making sure that obviously people were protected they weren't going to be fined by HMRC and and then even more so you know was the whole contractor landscape going to change entirely um we then moved obviously to COVID and then most of the questions I was getting were what funding can I access how can I make sure that the business is staying afloat and then what we started to see was a real kind of upshot with specific industries so things like the tech industries um, or IT in general really just seemed to be doing really really well and then, obviously, over the last few months, it's been more Brexit-related. So can I still provide services in France, Germany, Spain, etc.? Can I have freelancers working for me in Europe and um, providing services to me in the UK? Um, and then now we're coming back into IR35 time again. So it's now just a big hosh-bosh of everything, really. Oh, joy. Um, so um, <laughs> what did, and we'll come on to the, the freelancing side in a moment a bit more, but I just want people to know, who you are and 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 you know understand your credentials to help us answer these questions yeah so I am I'm a UK solicitor I'm born and bred Scotland I now actually live in Ireland even though I pretty much um, work with all UK clients really um I started out in actually the financial services world but I moved more to the kind of commercial contracts and corporate GDPR side of things a few years back just found it more interesting and entertaining and it was nice to kind of work with smaller businesses and independents um so I have been freelancing for about two to three years myself and I now have set up my own firm which has been running for just under a year um, but still doing freelancing as well so it's at that stage where I'm doing a little bit of a mix of both 
Um, I advise on UK law. So as I mentioned, commercial, corporate, GDPR, IP matters, and laterally Brexit. Um, and I'm also qualified in New York and California. So I get a lot of inquiries from across the water as well, um, or for UK clients looking to deal across the water too. So yeah, it's, um, it's been very interesting over the last few years. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, we, we're focusing very much on the UK law. And I say that because we have about 25% of our listeners are based in the United States. But I guess there's some relatable issues there. And as I said at the very start of this podcast, um, you know, this is for information purposes and, and for advice. Um, do speak to, well, speak to you. Details, of course, will be in the show notes. <laughs> so uh, before we get to the questions that have been submitted by the Freelance Heroes community, Mm-hmm. How does the law deal with the ever ever growing number of freelancers? I know that number has, has possibly dipped in the last 12 months or so, but it feels yeah. to me that the law is constantly playing catch up with the evolving freelance community. Is that right? Yeah, I would say so. I, I would say, well, we've even seen it in IRR, IR35, but yeah, I mean, generally speaking, it is always catching up because it's the same with digital stuff like the law just doesn't it has to change and evolve quickly um, and it do, it can't quite in the same way that the industry is moving so what I found is yeah that I'm still being hit with contracted agreements freelancer contracts to review for people that are five six seven years old haven't been updated don't take account of obviously the new data protection regulations they don't take account of the fact that IR35, which we'll come on to, I guess, later, but the fact that IR35 can actually be managed rather than just a terrifying thing that we all run away from. Um, sometimes I feel like the freelancing community aren't maybe given all the information to realise that they can actually contract with clients in a really simple way that protects themselves, but doesn't necessarily terrify the client by putting down a 25-page document in front of them and expecting them to sign it. Um, I, th- I think that there's the world, the legal world generally is becoming a lot more adaptable and flexible, and, and we're trying to catch up with freelancers. Some of us have, some of us hasn't, haven't. Um, but, yeah, it's it's the, the legal world always trails behind everything that changes, unfortunately. We do our best. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully there's all this information. It just means we'll have you on every six months to ask the same questions to see if there's any <laughs> But, uh, but there you go. Um, as I say, there have been some questions that have been submitted by the um, community and there's some other topics that we want to discuss as well, which we've touched on already. And of course, I should throw a caveat in there as well that the questions that have been submitted by the community, we don't really have any context to them. So then we'll possibly need to yeah. be some assumptions made as well, I guess. But let's dive yeah. straight in. Okay. Um, a, a, a very straightforward one, which is what to watch out for in contracts intellectual property seems to come up a lot um so what what where does it you know we all own our own knowledge in terms of that level of ip so what's required what's good practice in terms of contracts with our prospective clients yeah so i'll take it from that perspective as you you mentioned i'm not 100 percent sure of the context but i assume it is freelancing freelancers contracting directly with their clients so first of all you should always make sure that you have an ir35 review of your contract i know i keep harping on about it but it is so important 
Um, that is actually the key point, making sure there's nothing in there that would trip you up from an HMRC perspective. And we can talk about that in more detail, but that, that's your kind of main point. Second point is to be super clear in your contract what it is that you're delivering, what your timescales are, and how you're paying, and what happens if they don't pay. Um, because I very frequently see if you're presented with a contract from your client, obviously it's going to be in their favour. So there probably aren't any remedies for you as a freelancer to stop services or to charge interest or to do anything if they don't pay you. Um, that doesn't mean that you're left without remedies. It just means that it's a lot harder for you. So that, that's something I'd bear in mind. Make sure it's really clear how you're getting paid and what happens if they don't pay you. And then, yes, intellectual property is a big point. It's not the only point, but it is a big one. Generally speaking, it will depend on your industry. If you are freelancing in terms of you are providing a service to a client that they need for something internal to them, so whether that is preparing policies and procedures or preparing something that is created for that client, I would imagine that client is going to want to own that intellectual property. Um, and that's pretty industry, probably industry standard. Um, it, it wouldn't be fair for a freelancer to come in um, create something, be paid a lot of money for it, create something for that client and then the client doesn't own it. But that will be very industry specific. Like for instance, I would never give my clients IP rights to my contracts because then I wouldn't be able to use those contracts with any other clients. I wouldn't be able to use that knowledge going forward. So it very much depends on the role that you are there to fulfill. Um, rule of thumb, as I said, is if you're creating something specifically for that client, it's likely they'll want to have the IP the IP ownership of it. If you're create if you're just going in to kind of do some workshops or to teach them about X, Y, and Z, doing some training, etc., it's really important that you retain the intellectual property for yourself. If you're not sure, ask ask a solicitor because it's obviously quite a big deal if you start giving your IP away and you need to use it for something else. I feel if you're not sure, ask could could um, suffix every question or answer that you give. But you're absolutely right, of course. And I'm thinking of it even on the simplest form. So take the example, perhaps, of a of a photographer who has done a job for a client and provides those photos. The client pays for them, but there's no contract in place. So who who has the right to use them? Who owns those photographs? It's unclear, but it's probably the client who has paid for them. So could a photographer use them in a portfolio on their website, for example, without permission from the client in a default position? Obviously, the ideal scenario would be put it into a contract. Ideal scenario is put it in a contract. If it's not in a contract, it'll depend on what was discussed. Um, so if, you know, if there's a verbal contract, if it's by email, if there's anything there, if there's nothing at all, then the default position is that the client owns it and the photographer can't do anything with it, really. So it's really clear that you have that written down. If you still need the intellectual property rights for whatever reason, then have that written down. Um, another thing to bear in mind as well is you might want to consider adding a line into contracts where the client can't own the IP until they've paid all of your fees. That's a good one to have under your hat. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Sorry, I'm writing this, I'm writing this down myself. I should probably just listen back to the podcast. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good point. And I, okay, sticking on the, t the topic of the contract then, and you, you know, your credit control has been such a big part of what you're saying. And it's 
scarily yeah. and sadly one of the most common issues is clients either not paying or paying late can you add into yeah. context into the the risk because i think uh, the risks of not having a contract because freelancers very often especially those in the early parts of their freelancing journey and their career and they're not overly confident on what they should do or even know it's important might be afraid to start kind of putting contracts out there to clients even though you know subconsciously clients might expect it because they're worried that that might put a client off you know it's a confidence issue so could you just add some context as to how important I mean really kind of spell it out how important it is for freelancers to have to have a contract you know, including things like credit yeah. control, the IR35 review, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, yeah, have not having any kind of contract in place whatsoever is it's nuts. Um, it's absolutely insane, especially if you're going to be spending all of your time and your effort working for this client when you don't necessarily know that you're going to be getting paid at the end of the day. So ultimately, if you want paid, you're relying, if you don't have a contract, you're relying on their goodwill. Now, and that's not to say that you shouldn't get paid if you don't have a contract, because obviously, if you prof- if you provide a service for someone and you're able to prove that you provided that service, then you should be able to sue them for non-payment if they don't pay. But it makes life for you a lot more difficult. Um, I mean, you have certain remedies that are open to you if you have a contract in place that you don't have. If you don't have a contract in place, if you don't have a contract, it becomes a case of taking someone to court after you've asked them many times, please, pretty please, will you pay? Taking them to court and then you're going to have to prove to the court that you actually provided the service. And not only that you provided the service, but that the client asked you to provide that service and agreed to it and what the rate was, etc. You're just making life a lot more difficult for yourself. If you have a contract in place that says what you're doing, what you'll be getting paid, and that the client has signed that contract, it just makes life a lot easier in terms of, first of all, when you're chasing the client for payment, you can be saying, well, you've signed this contract, you agreed to this, I am entitled to this payment. Then it means if you want to go to a credit control agency or debt collection firm or anything like that, that you can pass them the contract. They won't work for you without a contract because they've got no proof that you're actually entitled to that money. And then if you're going to bring a a county court judgment against someone for payment, it's much easier. It's you're not you're not like like running uphill anymore. It's it's a lot, lot more of an easier process to just put the contract down and say I provided these services, I haven't been paid. It's just an order for a money judgment rather than trying to prove who did what and who agreed what. That's the, that's the payment side of it. But in all other respects, it just makes life a lot easier. If your client thinks you're providing X and you think you're providing Y, how do you know who's right? And as much as you've said, you know, but this is what they agreed and, and, and this is what I was asked to provide. What if you're wrong? And what if the client thinks that they have instructed something entirely differently and they're just as certain as you are? That's why a, a contract becomes really important. But that's not to say it has to be a 25-page contract with tiny writing that no one understands and that you negotiate for six months. Your contract can be two pages. It can be, I will provide this, you will do this, I will charge this, sign it and date it. It does not need to be terribly exciting. It doesn't need to be scary. Actually, I like to think that I specialise in making everything as simple and, and brief as possible. 
because that's what clients tend to want. Nobody wants to go back and forth on a super long contract for months. And and I think maybe that's also the fear that puts them off is, you know, there are templates around there. You're not entirely sure it's the right one. I mean, do you does the law require you? I think I'm going to know the answer to this, but does the law require you to have specific elements included in the contract once you start putting it together? Or is that really down to you to I mean, the basics sound like it needs to be credit control, IR35 review, um, what you who owns the IP rights? and deliverables yeah. of service. Is that it? The law doesn't, yeah, the law doesn't really require, well, it doesn't require a contract at all. I mean, the, the law requires a verbal contract, but that doesn't put you in the best position. It doesn't protect you. Um, and, and you'll see all this legal boilerplate wording, like clauses that say, like, no waiver, severability, um, no joint venture, all of them. Now, all of them have a purpose, and every other lawyer in the world is probably going to shoot me for saying this, but I don't tend to stick them in super short contracts that are for freelancers because at the end of the day, nobody has time to sit and review all these boilerplate clauses. You want to worry about the key things, which are what are the services, how are you being paid for them, who owns the deliverables from the services, Um IR35, but then also it's very important that you do have in there what legal system governs your contract. So it should say like this contract or this agreement is governed by English law and any dispute will be heard in the English courts. It just means that if there is a dispute and you don't have that, that court is going to turn around and say, well, we don't know that we can actually hear this case. So now you need to go and do a trial on who can actually hear this case before we enforce the payment. So that's something I would say definitely make sure that boilerplate wording is in there. But everything else, like in the in the interest of simplicity, give yourself a bit of a break on the other stuff. My goodness. Um, right. <laughs> so much. We've only dealt with one question. It leads you know, actually beautifully into the next question, which is about credit control. Um, you, you've addressed some of this already. And uh, the question was, uh, well, what is the best way from a legal perspective to get credit control in order and to encourage faster payment. Now, of course, put into a contract what your terms are. Sounds like yeah. the obvious and the best way to encourage faster payment. But from a legal perspective, what else can we do? So you're dead on. Have your have the your payment terms in the contract and also what happens if they don't pay. So your ability to charge interest, your ability to suspend the services until they've paid. Um, otherwise, you don't really have an entitlement to do that. So that's important. From an, an encouraging them to pay perspective, it's it's quite difficult because they're either going to pay or they're not. Um, what I typically do is have a, a kind of I, I use zero. Um, I'm sure lots of other people use zero. And I have three payment reminders set up. So once they're a week overdue, once they're two weeks overdue, and once they're three weeks overdue. And the, the messages that go out become progressively less polite as they go along. So it's things like, I think this might have been missed from your inbox. And um, just to let you know that this is seven days overdue. And then it becomes a case of we don't want to escalate this much further. Could you get this settled, please? And then final reminder is, um, you know, we'll need to be getting in touch with our whoever it is that you've decided to work with. So our debt collection agency or we will need to pursue this further if this isn't settled within the next seven days. So I let Zero do all that for me. Um, and that's fine. That's just like your kind of friendly reminders. 
After that, I always recommend sending out one personal email. So not from the system, because sometimes, you know, things happen. Maybe it's gone into junk, something like that. Um, normally what I personally find with invoicing is that once that personal email goes out, the invoice is paid. Um, and I would always stick along the lines of, listen, I really don't want to have to escalate this further, but it's causing some cash flow issues. That's nothing to do with legal. That is just purely guilt tripping people to pay your invoices. And um, at that stage, you have, you know, if they're not responding or if they're saying they're not going to pay or anything, you have two options, which is to go to a debt collection firm or to file for a CCG, a county court judgment. Um, Debt collection firms are expensive if it's only one or two invoices that you're looking to, to get back. They take a cut of the invoice, but they normally require a couple of grand up front. So I would only do that if this is becoming a recurring problem. Um, otherwise, I'd just file for a CCJ, just file um, for an order for a payment of a debt, and that will that will kick them into action pretty quickly. Uh, and, and if I can add as well, and this isn't a legal perspective, but I, um, if you know your client, uh, pays on payment runs then giving them a call a week before the payment run to say just checking that everything's all right for next week's payment run can often have an impact as well mm -hmm. but that has nothing to do with the legalities i just thought i'd throw that in out of those different yeah. stages and different letters whether it's just your first reminder through to a letter before action etc you know which one mm -hmm. tends to have the best results do you think either for you or from a, a you know in your experience with clients you deal with yeah, so I think for me it's easier because people don't like to receive emails <laughs> no, from me. People, people do not want to pay their lawyer. Like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for me, once I send out that personal email, that is the most effective part for me. And um, with clients, normally they come to me and they say, This person isn't paying. Can you send them a letter just shimming them along? Um, and at that stage, I'll send them out a letter, you know, on my firm's letterhead, um, and that gets them to pay pretty pretty quickly um so i would say if if it's becoming an issue and there's someone that won't pay maybe get a solicitor to send a letter before you do anything else fabulous fabulous thank you very much um so um let's go to a next question which is um and obviously i'm keeping these anonymous for i'm sure obvious reasons um yeah. i sell computer support services so we're talking help desk system system improvements etc to an eu client Limited, mm -hmm. limited company, not that registered, just me. I access via okay. remote, so no data on my device. But if I did, mm -hmm. then what? But we'll, I guess we'll deal with that in a moment as well. It's, but for Brexit, there's a lot about products, but not services. So what do I need to take into consideration legally? And this could also apply for other social media, etc., services too, I guess. Yeah, so the thing I would bear in mind, well... From a Brexit perspective, so the deal that was made on Christmas Eve um, in, in many ways is not really 100% worth the paper that it's written on, specifically in terms of the service agreement. Um, and the reason being, they've gone into loads of detail on what's going to happen with goods, so imports and exports, for obvious reasons. But the what they've agreed on service provision is actually really limited. So we're expecting a little bit more information out, hopefully in the next few months. But what we are seeing is this principle that they've agreed, which is no discrimination between UK service providers and EU service providers. So if you have a business in the UK and you're supplying services into Spain, nothing should really change for you. Um, it should just be exactly the same as, as you currently have been. 
from a GDPR perspective, things might change. Um, the EU is still to decide whether the UK is going to be deemed equivalent um, to the EU for data protection purposes. Something I think is absolutely madness because we obviously have GDPR here, but they still have to go through their adequacy assessment. Um, so that's everything basically from a GDPR perspective is going to stay the same for at least four months, probably six months. Um, so we will hear from the powers that be probably around April, May, June time as to what's happening with GDPR. Um, and I'll be able to give you more information then. Um, if, if the EU decides that the UK isn't equivalent, then it's likely the case that all UK companies are going to have to enter into what's called model contractual clauses with their EU counterparts. So basically contracts that say that will comply with GDPR. Um, if the UK is deemed equivalent, we won't need to do that and everything will continue as it always has. Um, but, I mean, service providers, there's really not a lot that's going to change um, in terms of Brexit. I would just keep an eye on the GDPR um, position and also just double check that there's nothing in any contracts you've signed that causes an issue with Brexit. You probably would have discovered that by now um, as being a month in if there was going to be something that would have caused a problem, but just have a check anyway. I'm thinking things like termination in the event that the UK leaves the EU or you know the client can stop paying if there's a material change in the circumstances, that kind of thing. But something like that has probably already reared its ugly head if it's going to. So really it's just continue as you are and keep an eye on GDPR really. So at the moment, just so I've got this right, we are covered by GDPR still. That's not, we're not, it's still. Not, not legally. Um, like, <laughs> so technically we're a third country. Technically we're not in the EU. These are all technicallys, but everybody's just pretending we are for the next few months until we have a decision. It's basically the, the position that we're in. Okay. All right. Brilliant. I'm going to avoid this becoming the James O'Brien show. Um, for for those who know, will will know what I mean. But um, yes, a lot of a lot more confusion, a lot more to unravel. Um, but and also as well, if there is any, then um, uh, we'll we'll update the show notes as well as and when. So um, so that would be great. Thank you very much. Um, so um, this is a three part question. Uh, the problem with legal questions is they're not going to be short because there's so much to them, which is which is absolutely fine. Um, I know sole traders aren't quite treated the same, but if you're working on a long-term project with one client, could you mm -hmm. be liable, or could it put the client at risk? So I'm assuming this is based on IR35. Um, is it better to set up a limited company but then ensure you fall within IR35? And if yes to, the, to to that point, do you have to have more than one client consistently? So this would be so interesting. I tend to run big, long-term, long project engagements and not sure I fully understand the implications of ERI, of IR35, sorry. So let's go into this. Let's start yeah. simply for anyone who's going into freelancing, who's unfamiliar with what IR35 is. Can you give us a, a summary of, of what it is and how it impacts freelancers? And then we can get into the nitty gritty yeah. of it. Yeah, this is like the most exciting thing to happen to the freelancing world ever. <laughs> you and I have very different understanding of the word excitement. But go on. Listen, I wasn't legal as a career, so I think that tells you a lot. <laughs> so IR35 is 
otherwise known as the off-payroll working rules, right? So that's HMRC's rules. And actually, if you think about it in that perspective, it's off-payroll working. What they're trying to target is people that are not paying the right amount of tax because of the way they've structured their freelancing business, right? So they're off payroll, so they should be on payroll, essentially. Obviously, people that are employed, they pay PYE, they pay national insurance, just it comes off their salary every month. If you work as an, a sole trader, freelancer, IR35 is not an issue for you. So that's the first thing. So HMRC does not care about you from this perspective. I've actually had loads of people, we offer free legal advice calls and I've had loads of people come on the calls, freelancers who are panicking um, that you know they're going to fall within IR35. And they say, so I'm a sole trader and I go, conversation ends here. IR35 does not apply to you if you are a sole trader. Reason being, if you think about their motivation, they're trying to to capture people who are paying tax in a more advantageous way, which is what happens when you set up and work through a limited company. If you're running as a sole trader, you're still paying income tax. Yes, you might be able to claim expenses, but you're still going to be paying at your 20% or your 40% or whatever. So that is irrelevant for you. So you can stop listening to that part right now. And limited companies are the ones that are caught. And it's limited companies with one director shareholder. So me owning a company and that company provides freelancing services for a client. Now, as I said, the reason HMRC are trying to capture you is because obviously you can take dividends from that company. You don't need to pay yourself on PAYE. You pay a much lower tax rate. So for HMRC, if they're examining the position that you know, the situation that you're working for a client, they're going to be looking for certain things. Um, and, and the way to kind of headline all of this is if you look like a legitimate third party supplier, then HMRC won't care. It's when you look like an employee, but you're actually operating through a limited company that they have a problem. Now, a big part of that is your contract. But uh, uh, the, it's, it's a wider assessment than that. It's also what actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis. So bear the, both of those things in mind. Um, so what I say to people is when you're looking at your freelancer contract, make sure it looks like you're a third-party provider. And, and there's certain things that are included in that. So, for instance, your name should not be in a contract ever. And I see this all the time. If you're running a limited company, so... Barbara Jameson Limited, Barbara Jameson should not be read, mentioned in that contract. Only Barbara Jameson Limited should, or whatever your company is called. And no matter how much your client pushes you on that, do not allow it. Because And it's really important that you're strong on that, because that opens you and your client up to IR35 issues. And that's the thing, the client's liable as well, it's not just you, so it's in their interests. Um, so you shouldn't be named. And then nothing else that kind of relates to you as an individual should be in there. So there should be nothing about sick days. There should be nothing about holidays, um, time off, you know, anything like that. Nothing that would be in an employment contract. Um, Timesheets is a big no-no. Um, any reference to timesheets shouldn't be in there. If you have to replace it with something, you could, it could be like a record of work completed. But what you don't want it to look like is that it's a, a trade for an hourly wage. 
um, and, and that's where timesheets becomes an issue. It needs to be really clear from the contract that you've not got a supervisor, so you're not subject to someone, the control or the supervision of someone else, so you don't report to someone, no wording like that, um, and, and nothing that requires that client to keep you on indefinitely. So that's why it's better to have shorter contracts um, with clients, so like three months, four months, something like that, or like a normal third party supplier would, I kind of master terms and conditions and then you just have like statements of work for particular pieces of work that they want you to do. Um, if, if somebody's operating through a limited company and they only have one client, they're likely to have an issue. What HMRC are looking for is, are you a legitimate business on your own account or do you basically exist to serve this one client? Now, when I say looking at the kind of broader spectrum of things outside the contract, that even means having your own website, having a separate email address that doesn't relate to the client, doing a bit of marketing and advertising on your own. It doesn't need to be massively successful, but you have to show that you're making an effort to not just work for that one client. So I, I just look at everything through a lens of does this look like a legitimate third party supplier or do I look like a member of staff who only works for one person? And but that sounds that last point you raised there about you know making sure you're not there just to to service that one client you're trying to that sounds yeah. quite that sounds well it sounds un unlawful unlaw like that it's quite subjective as to what that truly means I mean how much do you need to include to demonstrate successfully to the HMRC that you that you are not just there for that one client. I'm not trying to find a backdoor around it. I'm trying to protect those who yeah. generally aren't there just to service one client. It's really hard. And the thing is, it isn't an exact science. It's it's more of a, an art. It's more of a balancing act. Like what, and, and that's what HMRC will look at. They'll look at the whole picture. Um, I mean, if you, it's, it's hard to say, if you have worked for the same client for two years, and you haven't made any effort to go out and get any other clients, and you don't have a website, and your LinkedIn has the name of the client on your LinkedIn, and it looks like you work there, you've got a big problem. <laughs> um, but if, if you have a website that says, I offer legal services to clients, um, and I mean, it's all a balancing act, it's really hard. But if, if, if you know, I, I offer services to multiple clients we deal with x y and z um, and you happen to have worked for a client for a longer period of time but hmrc can see that you're actually running a business um, and it's not you're you know you've not set up that company just for tax benefits for working for that one client then it's 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 more likely to be okay it, it becomes it becomes a it's an assessment of the entire situation, and that's why it's really hard for me to say specifically. Um, obviously, there are people that are in a grey area between, you know, full third-party service providers and then people that only have worked for one client for three years. Um, there, there are people that are in a grey area. That's why I say it's really important to kind of look at the whole, look at the whole picture. Um, HMRC has a, a tool called the Crest tool on their website as well, which is a good starting point. You can go in, answer their questions, and it will give you an indication as to whether you are outside IR35, so fine, or if you should be inside IR35. Now, end of the day, like if you're inside IR35, it's not the end of the world if your, you know, your client is withholding tax 
on your behalf if they're withholding income tax and they're withholding national insurance. But that's probably not the way that you've chosen to be structured. So it's, it's probably a good idea for you to keep yourself outside IR35 by just making sure you are a legitimate business that offers services to multiple to multiple clients. How does Brexit impact on this for those who are currently only working with one client in the EU? Or does the HMRC not differentiate? HMRC doesn't care. So HMRC cares about UK taxpayers. So it's it's the it's the freelancer that HMRC is worried about. Um, so if if I you know if I am choosing to work for a US company, it's it's me that HMRC cares about. It's it's the fact that they want my income tax. So think about it that way. So Brexit doesn't have any impact. Okay, um, and you mentioned um, the how important it is to have an IR thirty five review in a client yeah. contract. So tell us more yeah. about what what that review is and and what yeah. should the part of it that should be in the contract. So that's making sure. It's like I previously mentioned, making sure you don't have your name, the individual's name in the contract, no references to timesheets, um, hourly rates, a supervisor that you report to, anything like that, anything that looks like an employment contract. But there's also specific wording that you do want to include in there. So things like a specific positive statement that says you don't, um, you're not subject to the supervision or control of the company, that you determine how the services are provided, um, that there's no mutuality of obligation, which basically means that the client isn't obliged to keep you on and you're not obliged to provide services to them outside the scope of this particular contract. Um, and then things like if, you're, if, if a worker that is working for your company, which is obviously just you, um, is sick or can't provide the services, that company is free to provide a substitute to provide those services as long as the sub substitute has the right skills and expertise. Now, obviously, in reality, that's never going to happen, but you want that wording in there anyway. It's really important that that is in there. Um, some of that sounds a little contentious in terms of there's no mutuality of obligation, you're not subject to anyone's control, but most of your clients will be used to seeing that wording and know why it's there and if the if they're confused about it you can just say to them this is you know the, the point of an IR35 review is it's actually quite a nice contract negotiation for lawyers because it's for the benefit of both parties so even if there's something in there that doesn't massively sit well with them they know it's actually to stop them getting fined so that that's important to bear in mind you can just explain that to the client um, and it hopefully won't be too contentious. Now. There may be one or two freelancers there in there. There we go. There are the dogs. Uh, there may be <laughs> These are the things of working from home, you see. Just if you're almost in doubt that Bams is a freelancer, then you can hear the barking <laughs> in the background to, to back it up. Um, there may okay. be one or two that are burying <laughs> their head. <laughs> there may be one or two that are burying their head in the sand about this. So yeah. um, I don't want to. Uh, focus on the negative, nor scare people. But what are the risks of uh, of of basically just ignoring it? Um, a couple of risks. First of all, your clients could just choose to stop working with you. Um, a lot of clients are so scared by IR thirty five that they're just cutting freelancers and contractors. Um, and actually, if you go to them with a pragmatic solution and say, "Listen, I have." 
a business here. I have other clients. You're not my only client. I've made these changes to the contract, that kind of thing. That kind of proactive approach, you're much much more likely to keep the client because they're going to be less scared about the whole situation because everyone's freaking out about this. So they're much more likely to keep you on. That That's the first consequence. If you just dig your head in the sand, you're probably more likely to be cut. Um, that's probably the best negative consequence. The, the worst one is that you continue and nobody says anything and HMRC investigate you and you could be fined and your client could be fined as well. And, and anyone in that supply chain essentially could be fined. So if your client has an ultimate client that you're doing a lot of work for, they can be fined. Um, and again, I'm not in the business of terrifying anyone either. I'm in the business of of risk management and being aware, being aware of the risks and not necessarily obliterating them all completely, but just managing them. The way to manage this is to have a conversation with your client and to make sure you're set up so that if HMRC ever come knocking, you can legitimately say to them, I don't just work for this client. I have lots of other clients and I'm not doing, I don't have this limited company set up purely to reap the tax benefits. Brilliant. Thank you very much. I think that's a wonderful explanation. I think uh, uh, there's a lot of people who are going to take that last kind of 10 minutes alone um, and really learn a lot from that uh, amongst everything else. So thank you very much for that. <clears throat> right. Um, I'm not sure if this is Bab's area. This is not me, clearly. This is the person who's asking the question. But another question uh, would be about insurance for individual freelancers, sole trader or limited. So how do you decide on the level of cover if it's not in response <clears throat> to a contract requirement? For example, as a marketing consultant, what's the typical level of uh, professional indemnity cover? One million seems to be common, but most people I ask don't seem to know why they chose the level they chose. And do you need public liability cover? At the moment, it seems less necessary as we're not visiting clients, but should you have it if you attend meetings at a client's office usually? Um, we'll do an insurance episode some other time, but um, you left the question in. So what can you tell us? Um, yeah, so I'm not an insurance expert. I would always say speak to a broker. Um, a broker is going to give you all the information you need, but I can speak to you from experience. Um, I would say, first of all, professional indemnity as a freelancer, you're probably going to struggle to get more than a million, to be honest. A million is is a good amount of cover. If you have a think about, if you give poor advice, what is the most damage you could cause? In most cases, a million is going to be plenty um, and you will struggle to get more than that. So if your unless your clients are really pushing for more, which I mean, that's only really going to be in kind of high risk industries, a million is, is, a, is a really good place to start. And you definitely do need professional indemnity cover for what you freelancers are doing. It's, it's your advice that people are relying on. So that's the first point. Um, public liability insurance, slips, trips and falls. Um, I would always say get it just because I think it's too high risk not to have it. And it's not terribly expensive. Again, a million sits fairly well there as well. Again, how 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 much damage could you really cause a person? Um, a million for most people will be fine. It, you only get into the kind of two, five, ten million mark when you've got a bigger company with with more people, or you're running a higher risk operation. Um, I mean, pub, public liability, you're probably going to pay twenty quid a month. Um, and to be honest, I think that's just nice for peace of mind. Um, but it's not a legal requirement. And um, so neither, neither is professional indemnity. None of these things are. 
I just always think, would you rather pay that 20 quid a month and have the peace of mind? Or what if somebody sues you for something and it completely bankrupts your entire your entire outfit because you don't have the insurance? If you if something happens and you don't have the insurance, you're funding it yourself. Um, so, so I would bear that in mind. I would also bear in mind that if you are working with other freelancers, you might need to have employer's liability insurance. Um, not typically if they have their own limited companies and they're insured, but if you're working kind of casually with other freelancers, even if they're not employees, you should have employer's liability insurance as well. Wonderful. A couple of bottles of wine a month for the sake of protecting your business. It sounds like a, a bit of a no-brainer. Um, I want to go back exactly. to the question contracts um because when you're setting a contract and and you know i think a lot of people will be buoyed by the fact that it doesn't need to be a war and peace document but isn't email sufficient in terms of this is my you know including all the bits that you mentioned about ir35 and payment services deliverables etc is it is it a, a sufficient to say these are my terms if you agree just reply to the email I mean, does that suffice or does it need to be a physical signature and posted back? So you can have a legally binding document just from speaking to someone. So in that sense of the word, yes, it suffices. Um, Is it perfect? No. But a way to make it perfect is to send an email confirming what you've discussed with the client, the fees, the scope of the work, and attaching your T's and C's to that email. So if you just have a terms and conditions document, this is this is what I do, um, to be honest. If you have your own standard terms and conditions that are two pages, set out the key areas that I've mentioned before, and then it allows you to keep the bespoke things to the email. So what services you'll provide, how much you'll charge, and send that to the client and say, if you agree to all of this, can you just come back and confirm? They confirm you've got your contract. I mean, it, 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 as you say, it's not perfect to do it pre, to do it uh, through the email, but it sounds like it's a considerable uh, improvement on even just a verbal agreement as well, which is great. There's another question about the contract here that's come through lately, which is, would you recommend formal or legally checked terms in all proposals of work? So even when working with smaller SMEs, for example, con- corporates always tend to present their own. So it seems like a high investment and the legal words can put people off. So can you say the question again? Um, so, so Would you recommend you formal or legally checked terms in all proposals on work? Um, so even, so I mean, this goes back to the, the, the point that a contract in itself really only needs to be a couple of pages. But realistically... Yeah. Would it be better to have more formal terms in those? Um, uh, it, would it be better to be more formal in the terms that you use? Because, you know, as the yeah. the person who asked the question says, it's easy for a bigger company because they often are used to it. They've got a department in house that can check it. But for smaller businesses, it can be off putting. But does it protect me anymore? Right, I understand the question now. Um, so, if you had, does it protect you anymore? Um, yes, ever so slightly, but I, I would say that does the the level of drama, to be perfectly honest with you, as to put a five page document in front of someone, is that enough of a benefit 
to to outweigh the risk that you'd be facing? I would say no. Um, If anything, actually, if you're working with big corporates and you put a 20-page document in front of them, they're going to pass that to their legal team. Their legal team is going to take ages to review it. You're going to have to go back and forth for ages. Whereas if you present them with a two-pager, the department that you're dealing with might just sign off and not pass it through to legal. So actually, in a lot of senses, even when working with a big corporate, you're better off with a smaller document. Does it protect you anymore having a longer document? Yeah, I guess it probably does. It covers off more boilerplate things like if one term of this clause proves to be unenforceable, you can enforce all the others. And all of that kind of legal boilerplate wording is a little bit more protective. But I try to give advice that's very pragmatic and practical in the world that we're living in. And to be honest, I think that for the benefit you're going to get with having that super long contract, you're actually going to put off more clients um, and make the negotiation process a little bit more protracted. Um, so quick fire round. <laughs> this is great. Is already. Um, so uh, the, the next question is um, trademarks. Do I need to register a trademark? Um, is my business big enough? Is it successful enough? Does it need it? I know that we did one with freelance heroes, um, but but generally, does a business need to? A freelancer, that is? I would say yes, um, if you are operating with a business that isn't just your name. So if, if you're operating just through a company, you know, Barb Jameson Limited, then no, nobody, nobody needs to trade that, trademark that. But if you have you know, freelance heroes, absolutely. Like if you think what you're trying to protect here, you're trying to, well, stop somebody accusing you of stealing their name and trodding all over their work in the industry. But you're also trying to protect someone coming along and pretending to be you. Now, you might just be a freelancer right now, but you could be a very successful freelancer and your business name could be out there. It could be well known. And if you're say say you're working in the UK marketplace, I mean the 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 UK Intellectual Property Office um, trademark registration is one of the simplest ones I've ever seen. Um, it guides you through it very well. Um, obviously, you might want to take legal advice on it. Some people choose to, but it's a very simple process. And to be honest, the fees are going to be depending on what you're registering, two to three hundred pounds if you do it yourself, that's your UK filing fees. And the benefit you're going to get from not having to like hire lawyers to defend your name or hire lawyers when you're being accused of something. I mean, that could be absolute thousands to go to court because there's a brand name dispute down the line. I understand that a lot of freelancers are just starting out and they don't think that their name is a particularly big deal and they think, oh, but who, who's going to care about this? It's it's not a huge investment. It's sizable. It's two to three hundred pounds, but it is the cost of it is far smaller than a legal action down the line. And how long does it last for when you trademark yourself? Ten years. Okay, there you go. And Thank you very much. Sorry, say that again. <laughs> And you just renew it after that. So brilliant. Um, so privacy policy. Do I need one? Um, 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 why? Yes, I'm assuming you the answer is yes. Yeah. Yes, you need one. And um, you need one if you are processing personal data, which everyone is. 
Um, when, when GDPR first came in, people kept saying to me, um, we're not processing personal data. And I was like, well, you're holding my name. So yes, you are. Um, and this is a thing um, to bear in mind. Privacy policies are needed by everyone. You need to tell people how you're holding their personal data. And then you need to register with the Information Commissioner's Office if you're based in the UK as well. Every single business trading in the UK has to register with them to tell them that they're processing personal data. That's really important. And what's deemed to be personal data? Because you therefore mentioned your name, but I suspect that's available in the public domain through social media, if nothing else. So what's what's deemed to be personal data? So... Personal data is information that identifies a human being that isn't available in the public domain. However, names, email addresses, contact details that are in the public domain, they are still treated like personal data, as in if you hold them on someone, you should only hold them for reasons that are you know, necessary and you should only hold them for no longer than you need them for. So if someone had a, a, a record of my name and email address, that would be fine because they would have got that from the public domain, but they still couldn't hold on to it for longer than they needed it. And they couldn't hold it for a purpose that they didn't need it for. Brilliant. Um, I mean, there's been so much kind of included with all of this. There are inevitably more to cover. And if uh, people want to submit questions, we're more than happy to have you on again. Um, but mm-hmm. I guess I'd like you to almost preempt that, really. What are some of the myths that you... Uh, understand uh, are often communicated through the freelance community that you think people might not realize are either untrue or actually have you considered this something that we may not have covered off in this podcast um i think i've probably covered most of them i think the big ones at the moment are that ir35 is going to destroy the industry that's a myth it's not you just manage it um another one is that ir35 applies to everyone it doesn't um what other myths um that brexit is going to ruin freelancing again absolutely fine service providers can continue as they are um for the most part um some other myths uh well yeah a big one would actually be that clients won't sign up if you put a contract in front of them if anything um they'll respect you they'll understand what's being delivered when they have to pay um you've set boundaries i think that's a big one actually is um is, is people thinking that they'll terrify their clients if, if they put a contract in front of them. And it's actually the, the one that you can manage in terms of the tone of voice of the document, the you know how, how simple it is, how short it is, and still protect yourself without annoying the client. Um, so, there, I mean, you've covered off so much brilliantly. It's caused some confusion. Normally, I would take a minute of that or less and a soundbite and use that um, when marketing the podcast across social media. I haven't the faintest idea which minute <laughs> I'm going to use. There's so many of them. Uh, so thank you very much for that. Um, but you will have to deal with one query is that when people do want to find you on LinkedIn, do they search for Babs, Barb or Barbara? They <laughs> search for Babs Jameson. <laughs> brilliant and we'll put the link to your website and uh, uh and uh, your linkedin channel um on the show notes as well but this has been uh, uh, an immense uh, amount of your time uh so thank you so much for giving it up to help answer the questions of the community and more as well and as i say i'm sure we'll have you on again to answer some more in the future thanks so much ed no it's been great thank you so much for having me
you'd like to hear more about the Legal Leverage Framework and access some free resources, including free guides and trainings, pop over to our website, which is jamesonlaw.legal, and click on free resources. We hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Tune in to our next episode to learn more about how to grow and scale your business the right way. Thank you.